good Wednesday morning, and today Dr. John's going to be speaking about how we get back the Christian mind. Good morning, folks. Um, nice to have the occasional comment from you. Uh, uh, it sort of encourages me that it's worth the effort. But uh, I've been reading this week, uh, I'm rereading slowly Tom Soule's Intellectuals, uh, and then... I'm also rereading Chesterton's Orthodoxy and New Begins Gospel in a Pluralist Society, uh, as well as a few other odds and ends. But um, the issue that I want to talk about, because to start with, about the Christian mind, how we how we understand it ourselves, and the way in which we've allowed a secular understanding of mind to dominate, uh, these things need to be corrected. Um, let me read first of all from uh, a name I didn't mention on the way, uh, but the man I've quoted, I think, on on, on this podcast, but I'm not sure. Um, it's Michael Polanyi, who uh, was the driving force behind uh, Leslie Newbegin's contribution to. And this is what he wrote a long while ago, way, way back. The adherents of a great tradition are largely unaware of their own premises, which lie deeply embedded in the unconscious foundations of practice. If the citizens are dedicated to certain transcendent obligations and particularly to such general ideals as truth, justice, charity, and these are embedded in the tradition of the community to which allegiance is maintained, a great many issues between citizens and all to some extent can be left and are necessarily left for individual consciences to decide. The moment, however, a community ceases to be dedicated through its members to transcendent ideals, it can continue to exist undisrupted only by submission to a single centre of unlimited secular power. That quotation is a prophecy because... Polanyi foresaw what would happen with Marxism. He was Hungarian, uh, a very, very good scientist, and when he saw what was happening to the north of Hungary in 1917, the Russian Revolution, he was worried. And when he spoke to uh, uh, Bukharin, I think it was, but the nameless man of the, the Soviet Minister of Science and was told that science in the Soviet so society will be directed by the pro proletariat. Now, he knew it didn't matter where the proletariat came from, whether it was from the top or the bottom, you can't direct science. It happens. It has. There's a mystery to it. Uh, and he saw that if they went that way, it would die. Well, that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, here's another. This time, it's Hayek, uh, who you may not know. Um, he's a good example of an intellectual who's not largely read, but has made a huge impact on society. His name is Friedrich Hayek. Uh, he ended up teaching in London, but this is what he wrote. Not all knowledge, in this sense, is part of our intellect, nor is our intellect the whole of knowledge. 
our habits and skills, our emotional attitudes, our tools and our institutions. All are in this sense adaptations to past experience, which have grown up by selective elimination of a less suitable conduct. They are as much an indispensable foundation of successful action as is our conscious knowledge. Here's a man who, as far as I know, was not Christian, but he understood that there's knowledge in all societies that's deeper than what we are conscious of. He was a huge influence on both Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, his, his basic little book, which should be on your shelf, especially if you have any uh, aspiring uh, politicians, is The Road to Serfdom. That actually didn't come from The Road to Serfdom, but that's the book to read first. And this whole point about what we know without knowing that we know it and may not even be able to articulate it is very important. I, I think it's the best way to talk about conversion, uh, the real thing as opposed to the domesticated version that we are content with most of the time. Uh, I like the story of the Philippian jailer for that reason. Uh, it's a dramatic story. Children love it, you know, having the prison shaken by a, uh, an earthquake and the chains dropping off and the jailer about to kill himself and Paul says, don't, we haven't run away. And the, the jailer is so overwhelmed by the behavior of Paul and Silas that when he's cleaned up their wounds and given them something to eat, he, he, he says, how do how do I get this way of living? And Jesus and Paul says, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved." Um, it's a very simple statement, isn't it? Uh, but this this belief and this belief, this one, of course, changed a man's life forever. And uh, again, this week I was actually reading in uh, an older copy of uh, First Things by. Uh, a guy now teaching in Toronto, whose name has currently escaped me, but will return in a moment. Uh, but he was talking about his own experience as a young man when he was a missionary uh, in, Bu in, in, of all places, Burundi, uh, just across the lake from where Sally and I spent quite a lot, lot of time over the years. And uh, Burundi had, had about 50 years of missionary activity when uh, this guy turned up there. And it was a, an important experience for him because he realized they didn't interpret the Bible. They lived it in a sense. Uh, they could relate to it because, after all, Burundi was a, uh, an agrarian economy. It was very like Israel at the time of Christ. But there was a passion to their faith, which he didn't have. He had, if you like, an intellectual Christianity, uh, as I had, assented to the truth of the story. Uh, but there he was confronted in Africa, as I was, by an understanding of the faith, which was much deeper, but not really articulated at all well. Uh, they're not surprised by miracles because they believe the Bible describes what happens when you really believe. And they happen in, in places like that. 
uh, uh, what we're talking about when you say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, it's not something that you could write down in a multiple choice test. It's Peter saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, he knows that it's something that is a gift and it can be renewed. That's why I was in, I'm interested in watching what's happening at Asbury as to whether that is going to be the outcome. The outcome is it is by their fruit she shall know them. The real thing will bear fruit in other ways, um, which we don't think about, uh, which go on for a long while. Uh, and this is where we get back to a recurrent theme of how God worked with human beings from the Garden of Eden onwards. For a long while, he just let the image of God be there and let them see what they would do. And of course, they screwed up time and time again. But he was in no hurry. Um, he didn't start working on a particular nation until after the Tower of Babel, when languages became uh, the defining feature of nations, as they still are, um, real nations. We're, we're, we're no longer nations in that sense in most places in the modern world. We're groups of people who have agreed to live together on the whole for economic benefits. Uh, and if we think that everybody's going to get enculturated as they did in the early part of uh, the American history, uh, you're in for a big surprise. That's not going to happen. Because what happened in the early part is the people who came and were the early immigrants inhabited the story of Judeo-Christian thought. They didn't bring a different story. Um, now you can see people have come with, with different stories and they're demanding different beha behavior. Now, that's going to be problematic. Again, Roger Scruton wrote very well about this, and uh, I was reading a little bit of him this week as well, uh, in which he talks about Angela Merkel and her letting in a million Muslim refugees and why she did it. And he said, it, well, it's, it was highly predictable that they wouldn't immediately say thank you to Germany and start living like Germans. Why did she do it? Well, because Germany is still processing guilt uh, it's it's not quick to get over those things. Uh, what they allowed to happen, for pragmatic reasons, I mean, Hitler put everybody to work. Uh, they said to Mussolini, the, at last the trains ran on time in Italy. Uh, they were concerned with practicalities. My wife, even when she was a, at high school, had an exchange in Germany, and she was amazed to find that the woman in the household was not anti-Hitler even after the war. She said he was good for us. He made things work. He, he, she only had the subjective sense of what was going on and she hadn't got over it at that point. But particularly the rulers, the elites, they're still processing it. They don't know what to do and so Letting in a million refugees is an incredibly gracious thing to do. Uh, but if you don't think that's going to change your society, you're incredibly naive. So you better start thinking about in what way will that happen. Now, I got into a lot of trouble a few years ago for saying this in the context of medicine, but I didn't lose the argument. I wrote a little paper called uh, The Myth of the Multicultural Patient, 
they don't exist. Everybody believes something because that's the nature of being a human being. Secularism is a faith. It's no less, it's no more rational. In fact, it's less rational than Christianity. But they treat us as a religion and themselves as somehow higher and better, a sort of intellectual elite, which they absolutely are not. But we have retreated into pietistic little groups where we huddle down and hope they'll go away, and they're not going to go away, and it's not what should happen anyway. If we knew our history, we wouldn't even be expecting that. So the reason I say that multiculturalism is certainly inappropriate to medicine is that every patient who comes to see a doctor arrives with a story of meaning. Whether How good it is is the question. Uh, but what it does do is determine what you can and cannot achieve. So you need to know where it is. There's no multicultural catch-all. Uh, the story I normally tell, and I, I, I apologize to those of you who listen to this podcast, that you will hear the narratives again and again and again. And I had to learn that over the years. Um, my wife in particular likes saying, now you've got to move on. And I said, well, I have a sense that I don't have to move on. Uh, I realized that Christ told those stories that he told many times. He went from village to village uh, teaching about the kingdom. And the result was uh, what we know as Christ Christianity. Uh, people remembered those stories. We do to this day, almost everybody who's even a, a very lightweight Christian could remember a good many of the stories, the parables and the miracles, but they almost certainly couldn't re reproduce the immediate context that they were there to illustrate. So we capture the pictures, the stories first, and then later on we go back and have ha-ha moments when you suddenly realize what it really means and why it's important. That's why narrative has got to come back centrally, and we, we absolutely must fill our children's minds with all the stories of the Bible. In the first seven years, while they're not thinking logically, they're just sucking it all up. They have minds like steel traps for stories. They don't have steel traps that are ideas like obedience that takes a long while to achieve. But they remember all the stories you tell you, and those stories create the cultures. So if you live an animistic society, which is what I had to learn when I got to Africa, um, then your way of dealing with the world is essentially fatalistic. I mean, everybody has to be able to deal with life as they appreciate it. If they don't have something to hang on to, in the end they commit suicide or take to drugs or alcohol or whatever. We're essentially a trivial society now. We couldn't handle COVID. We didn't have when you think of the courage people showed in the face of the Second World War and, it, and before we had antibiotics, uh, it didn't even occur to me when I saw the last case of spontaneous smallpox in Europe to be frightened uh, because the culture that I'd already taken on board in medicine had taught me what my duty was. Sick patients are to be dealt with uh, as safely as you can, but the first requirement is that you be willing to sacrifice yourself for the patient if necessary. Uh, now, smallpox was not bad because I, I was immunized. It needed renewing and it got done that day. But 
uh, many of my colleagues in nephrology, there were about 10, I think, who died from hepatitis when uh, acute hepatitis can be passed to the doctors setting up the dialysis. Uh, used to be, fortunately, we have vaccines for that now. Uh, and it can be very virulent when it gets into a normal person, but the immune system of the uh, person with chronic renal failure just accepts it and carries a burden, so their blood is lethal. And about 10 doctors died in Britain during uh, a hepatitis outbreak amongst uh, uh, nephrology dialysis patients. And as far as I know, the government didn't immediately think of their children and their wives as being in need of a pension for a long while. I hope they did get one. I don't know whether they did. But I never heard anybody said, oh, we should have been locked down long before that. That wasn't the way we thought about it. The story we had was richer than the one we have now. So as the story diminishes, so your capacity to do certain things diminishes. Now, let's start with the pagan, the, the, the oldest story of all in Chesterton's book, uh, Mind. Uh, that's the book of nature. And if you look at nature, as Tennyson put it, nature uh, is a story of blood and gore. Nature red in tooth and claw is the way he put it. Uh, that's the way it is. There's nothing you can do about it. That's the way they live their lives. And it makes it, it enables them to understand and accept it. Uh, so they believe in evil spirits, local events. It has to be local. They have to be local because the problem is when something horrible happens, one child dies in this hut and the child in the next hut doesn't die. Why is that? Well, different evil spirits, different outcomes. So if you believe in local evil spirits like that, that can do whatever they maliciously wish to do, will you ever do an experiment? No, you can't even conceive of doing an experiment because different evil spirit, different outcome. That's why... I see Jordan Peterson said I was wrong about science and faith. I haven't yet listened to that video, but I assume he's got a long last to this particular point, uh, that science has a theological base. Experimental science couldn't happen in a world of evil spirit, dominated by evil spirits. You have to believe in order under the surface chaos of life to do experiments. And the people who did it, of course, were all, to begin with, were all members of the Catholic Church and, and university members at that, they believed that the world was ultimately un, in the hands of God and that his character, which they believed to be orderly, must be there under uh, the surface chaos of life. So as I think it was uh, a, a history of science guy, Butterfield uh, at Cambridge, who, who said later that if Newton had not had his God, he would not have gone looking for his laws. The first thing you think about when you look at uh, the heavens is, is not geometric mathematics. Uh, good observers can see regularities and irregularities. Uh, they tended to anthropomorphize the stars or some of them. But Newton changed it all to a very reductive scheme, which he insisted. He wasn't claiming that it was true. He was claiming that it, ex it explained. And when people think 
that science can give meaning. Science doesn't give meaning. Science gives us control. It gives us understanding of how things happen. It has nothing to say about the whole of the metaphysical world of oughts and shoulds and musts, which are essential to a society. So the moment you hear people in government saying, we follow the science, well, hold, your, hold on tight, you're in for a very rough ride because politics is about framing laws uh, that have to tell us what we ought to do. Well, they better start with how do we get to that foundation? How can we believe there are laws that are solid and in place? Who judges the judges is a very important issue. Uh, and it's one that's not being properly dealt with. Vital that we should get this straight. So in Africa, when a child died of malnutrition, I discovered to my horror that even in the nurses that I'd trained to treat malnutrition when it was still in the early stages, they didn't see it as a nutritional problem. They, they saw it as the act of an evil spirit. The evil spirit took the child's appetite away, so they go to the witch doctor, spend their money on the witch doctor, so they spend less on food, and the child dies. How do you get inside their story of meaning is actually a better one than ours at first sight for living in a place where half your children don't make it to maturity, your crops fail apparently at random, uh, the chief is an all-powerful figure and everything beyond that is chaos and corruption. Uh, a god of love is not immediately apparent in that, is it? They do believe in a distant reality that we've ceased to believe in. You try walking through a rainforest with an African and telling him that all this incredible, luxurious and fascinating material around you is an, is an accident, uh, they'll look at you in disbelief. No, somebody made this. It's, it's too obviously so. But now we reach the stage where we're still doing science, but not as well as we did. Our creativity is dropping off already. That's, that's apparent. We're doing technology more and more, which is not the same thing. But that would be another podcast. So, uh, no, they believe in the distant creator, but obviously he has no interest in them. But the gospel, once it arrived with its answers to their existential questions, which put it into a much bigger picture, uh, that, that, they're like the New Testament church. I can Well, even Douglas Murray, the uh, agnostic political commentator uh, who travels around the world to bad places trying to understand what's going on, tells quite straightforwardly of being in northern Nigeria where minority villages, villages who are Christian will still say to the Muslims who are going to kill them as they run away, there is a judgment, repent. They're, and they're not afraid of dying. They don't get in the way of it if they can avoid it, but they're, they're not quite yet at the early church stage where they went looking for martyrdom and the leaders of the church said, no, you don't look for it. Uh, but if it comes, Christ will be with you. And that, that was the essential point. The, the famous story of early Christendom in the height of the persecutions uh, was of a, a slave girl and a noble woman, both of whom were Christian, and they were thrown to the lions together. 
And uh, the slave girl, when she was picked up by the Roman authorities, uh, was pregnant. So they looked at her and said, oh, we'll keep you in prison till we've got the baby, that's another slave, and then we'll throw you to the lions. Well, she had a tough pregnancy, and she was screaming during the delivery, and the guards were taunting her, what's she going to do next week when the lions come? And her response went round the world. Next week, he will be with me. And next week, when she was thrown to the lions with the noble lady, the two of them knelt and prayed and said not a word. Killed with a single blow. That's, that story could be repeated time and time again. It was the martyrs who stunned the Roman Empire because they'd never come across this before. Stephen was the first. I mean, Stephen clearly got under the skin of Paul uh, when he was holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen, and Stephen didn't even appear to feel the stones because he was looking up into heaven and he could see Christ and he was transfigured. And Paul was intellectually honest, unlike so many people who, who today refuse to face reality for a long while. But they will have to. God keeps pushing reality at them, and hopefully it will be soon rather than late. But that knowledge is not capable of being uh, passed on by us. That's personal knowledge of Christ coming into our lives, and all we can do is bear witness to it, or not, as the case may be. Jesus said, go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Um... If the answer is nothing, you better start thinking about why that might be the case. And as always, it's the use of the means of grace which will move you forward. Um, every young person who's Christian going to university should uh, know by heart Acts 2.42. They continued in the Apostles' Doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Four things which we are required to do, and they're getting increasingly difficult to do because... It's very hard. I have several friends who are in touch with me who say, I've been to every church for 25 miles around where I live, but they're not real. They're not doing what used to happen. What I had when I was a young student and had to choose between half a dozen brilliant sermons every Sunday in different places, but they were alive with the fact that the person who was preaching was, was as well as being a, a scholar and an intellect, was somebody who was talking about, about what the Lord had done for them. It wasn't a distant uh, intellectual activity only. I mean, that is part of what we do, uh, but the most important part is not that. That's why I, I love these stories of real conversions and the ones I've witnessed along the way, they move me. I mean, I've seen plenty of tragedy. I, I don't shed tears in the middle of a disaster. I look around to see what triage needs to be done immediately and get on with the job. I don't, I don't think I ever cried over a malnourished child. I've been too busy working. And I, in the end, I believe that the Lord has a, a role for them too, but not of this world. 
the first thing that Christianity does when you start thinking about it and looking at what happened to people is realizing how big the picture is. And it's only to be understood meaningfully from there, not from here. And once you've got that straight and there is sufficient reality in your life, uh, you have the means to cope. And on occasions, and this is God's doing, he can erupt into your life. Uh, And he does that when you go beyond your normal comfort zone. Everyday Christianity is built around some very straightforward, simple disciplines. But the best part of it happens to you unexpectedly. Our feelings are God's province. Uh, We are required to be obedient, which means learning what we are to be obedient to. The Christian definition of love is stunningly simple. If you love me, keep my commandments. And there isn't a single person listening to this podcast who doesn't know that there are parts of their life that needs to be corrected. They're not living as well as they should as the creature made in the image of God. And they all know it. We all know it. Christian and non-Christian alike. Uh, The Christian is much more guilty because they know what the solution is as well. Uh, The non-Christian doesn't. So they depart for drugs and alcohol and the like. When we find ourselves doing that as Christians, then we're in trouble, deeply in trouble, and we need to turn around. So this idea that this is to be achieved by our minds is really, it's there throughout the whole of the the Gospels and absolutely in the epistles. The epistles are all about this. But right at the end of his earthly life, our Lord in the upper room discourse, after they've had supper, he gets up and washes their feet. And then he says to them, and everybody remembers that story, but they don't always remember what he says next, which he says, you call me Master and Lord, and you do right, because that is who I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, what ought you to do? Now, that's a no-brainer. Uh, The washing of the feet may happen in all sorts of different ways, but that's the way forward. That's the lesson he chooses to start the upper room discourse with. And he goes on. I mean, I've been trying for years to see if I could recite the, tell the story of the whole upper room discourse in the same way that by the grace of God I, I can the Sermon on the Mount. I might get there before the end of my life. I don't know. Um, Little bits of it are standing out in that kind of narrative way. Uh, the next one in this that particular sequence would certainly be, uh, without me you can do nothing, the parable of the vine. Uh, that's a pretty strong statement. We just gloss over it. Without me you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal importance. Uh, and what does he say? I've come to bring them to faith. No, at the end of the the upper room discourse, in the prayer in Gethsemane, he says, I am come that they might know, that they might know, thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. He came to bring knowledge at a level that you will never find in a science textbook. Um, So, we need to learn how to talk about this. And I would say 
one of the things you need to do immediately is to not pretend you can tell someone how to become a Christian. Because God does that, we don't. The Holy Spirit does that. We can give, it, hopefully, an account of how we were brought to faith, but we will all recognize that our account is very incomplete, and it would take a great artist to tell any single conversion really well. But we can bear witness to what it was. And the witness is usually, I would probably say invariably, not a sort of logical sequence. Usually it's people telling where they were, when something happened, and lo and behold, it has happened before in many ways, but suddenly you see it differently. Uh, my good friend uh, David, who's now in glory, and his conversion afterwards, he said, when I got home to my village in Derbyshire, it was as though I had new eyes. There was nothing there that wasn't there before he went to London for a year. But when he got back, he saw it differently. When he left, he was a modern nothing uh, in terms of faith. When he got back, he was a Christian. So he said, I never noticed that the kids were into mild graffiti and vandalism, but nothing serious, but they had nothing to do and nobody was trying to change that. So he joined the church, started a youth group, and that was, that was the new eyes, and that's exactly what Jesus said you should look for. He said, by their fruits you shall know them. Don't ask them questions. Look at what they do. And when our faith works in that way, it will be different. Now, this podcast has gone on too long already, so probably we'll, we'll stop here. I, I'll talk a little bit about what we do in medicine, what needs to be done in medicine, uh, and it needs the patients as well as the doctors to cooperate as a separate issue. But thank you for listening. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. We hope you guys are enjoying this. If you are, feel free to share it with a friend, leave a review for the podcast, or leave a comment if you're watching on YouTube. With that being said, we'll see you guys all next week. Thank you.